the Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Cezwe Mbofu-Walsh, postdoctoral fellow here at Wiser, and welcome back to the Wiser Podcast. What does it mean to be a black artist painting black subjects? In this two-part series, Professor Thoni Pamukwena of Wiser explores the work of artist Muleko Mohosi. In this episode, she introduces Mohosi's work, focusing on its themes of black internationalism and utopian Southern African imaginaries. Mohosi, an artist of growing international renown, was born in 1981 in Botswana. He studied for a BA at Williams College, Massachusetts, and attended the Whitney Independent Study Program in New York. Thereafter, he completed his MFA under the mentorship of Mary Kelly at UCLA. He is now Associate Professor in Painting Printmaking at the Yale School of Art. His artwork may be viewed at links included in the description to this episode. In the second episode of this series, Mugwena interviews Mohosi about his life and work. These dogs that don't bark, these sentinels of front stoops, these watchdogs of potted plants and guardians of crammed doorways, these dogs that lived in our childhoods even when they never breathed, These ceramic hounds with their snouts slightly turned upwards as if sniffing the air. These are the dogs whose coats were permanently glossy and they never needed to be fed. They just sat there day after day counting the hours of their decorative lives. These are the dogs that Meleko Mukhosi brings back into existence with his large scale paintings that beckon us back to these intimate spaces wherein our memories were formed. That nostalgia for the homely is what structures the painting's language about men and women, young girls and young boys, school-going children and young stars in their uniforms. The shock of it is that Mukhosi has turned them into paintings and therefore converted what may be thought of as the ephemera of everyday life into biography and narrative. The biographies of our two nations, Botswana and South Africa, are folded into each other as Mukhosi chooses to use the colors of Southern Africa's liberation movements to add accents and commentary. The green, yellow and black of the Congress movement sits juxtaposed to the Pan-African flag of red, black, and green. Politics and domesticity stand next to each other and ask us to contemplate what the politics of the intimate might look like. For a moment, it may be useful to think of the paintings as excerpts from a photo album, as kinds of snapshots that capture the immediacy of a passing moment. When color photography and codex Polaroids became popular in the 1980s, people turned the keeping of albums into an art form. 
Albums would be decorated with yesteryear's Christmas and birthday cards, all cut out to create creeping vines, bouquets of flowers, and arabesque embellishments. It's as if Mukhosi has raided such an album and brought the 90s back to life. Only it's not just an era. It's not just a period. And it's not just our innocence. What Mukhosi has placed on the canvas is, as they like to say, a whole mood. The 1980s were a dark period in Southern Africa's history. Zimbabwe was still a new nation, fresh from its Chimurenga Wars of Liberation that had only ended in 1979. Mozambique's Frelimo and Renamo were battling each other in a civil war that only ended in 1992. And in Angola, the MPLA and UNITA were also caught in a civil war that lasted from 1975 to 2002. In different ways, both South Africa and Botswana were affected by these wars. Botswana became home to many exiles who were fleeing civil war, while South Africa was involved in stoking the flames that were causing the fighting and also assisting various anti-communist combatants in the wars on its borders. Yet, in all this upheaval, we still went to school with our pressed blazers and shirts, polished and shined shoes, and neatly combed or braided hair. This contrast between national or regional geopolitics and our everyday lives receives an overdue revival in Mukhosi's paintings. It's a kind of benediction for those of us who were born in the 1970s and 1980s, we are given the opportunity to forgive ourselves for our naivety and willful gullibility. And then there are the bullocks, the humped Brahman bulls that Meleko Mukhosi also resuscitates from our childhood. You can tell that like me, he grew up with copies of Farmers Weekly lying around. The livestock that inspires some of Mukhosi's work is both fantasy and reality, since more often than not, the black hand or hands that are painted next to an animal are not the owners of the animal. The black hands are implied farm servants. Somewhere in the background, a white farmer in khaki shorts and shirt stands in overlordship. The sinister presence of the unspoken labor relationships that have structured the economies of Southern Africa is a reminder that there can be no history without the overpowering of nature. Here and there, there is the subdued and hunted lion ready to live its life as a trophy. The power of Meleko Mukhosi's commentary as a painter is that he revivifies both the worker and the master the killer and the killed, the hunted and the hunter, without telling you which is which. Some of Mukhosi's depictions of animals, especially the livestock, remind me of J.M. Kutsia's Elizabeth Costello, who is the central character and philosopher in the book, The Lives of Animals. And her words seem to capture what Mukhosi paints 
on the canvas. She mused, and I quote, anyone who says that life matters less to an animal than it does to us has not held in his hands an animal fighting for its life. The whole of the being of the animal is thrown into that fight without reserve. When you say that the fight lacks a dimension of intellectual or imaginative horror, I agree. It is not the mode of being animals to have an intellectual horror. Their whole being is in the living flesh. I urge you to walk flank to flank beside the beast that is prodded down the chute to his executioner." End of quote. It is this living flesh that I admire when I look at Mukhosi's inclusion of animals in his paintings. It is not a perfunctory idealization of the pastoral, but an engagement with the ways in which in the history of colonization, it is often the animals who suffer first. They are the nature that is subdued and conquered first. Then come the animals. I cannot say enough about the image of Frederick Douglass that Meleko Mukhosi has given the Dutch wax treatment to. I have an interest in that image because I'm trying to finish David Blight's biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. So it gives me a certain amount of pleasure to imagine that Mukhose and I share a reading list. Or as they say in Southern Africa, we are in the same WhatsApp group. That's not the only reason, however, since there is, I dare say, a renewed interest in what Jane Nadal once called black internationalism. In her very short piece on the, on the subject, she projected back in 1928 that black youth were coming to terms with the history of slavery and that this was the foundation of what she called a race spirit. She wrote, and I quote, that black youth are already taking on the study of slavery, facing up to, with the detachment, a past that is quite palpable and so painful. Isn't that the greatest proof that, that, that there does finally exist a black race, a race spirit on the path of maturity. Those who know how among black people, certain subjects have, have until recently been taboo, can appraise the progress represented by these recent facts." End of quote. In case of Mukhosi's version of black internationalism, it is the confluence of African liberation and Pan-African consciousness whereat the conversation about slavery and colonialism can take place. Since Frederick Douglass was also a feminist, this conversation cannot exclude women of color, and Mukhosi asserts this commitment in his inclusion of Harriet Tubman and the poster from the Federation of South African Women. These images also reference the Culture and Resistance Conference of 1982 that was held in Khaburoni at the Botswana National Museum and brought together exiled South Africans who were living in Botswana at the time and those who were still living in South Africa. The conference 
also known as the Festival of South African Arts, gave voice to the role of artists in Southern Africa's liberation movements. And I think that Mukhosi is continuing that conversation, as is evident also in the books that he has included on his bookshelf. No Violet Bulawayo's We Need New Names sits on the same shelf as Winnie Mandela's account of her 491 days in solitary confinement. This is what I mean in some senses by the title Pax Africana. The concept refers to all the utopias and future visions that have emerged from and circulated in Southern Africa and to the relationships that the Southern countries have attempted, sometimes unsuccessfully, to forge with the rest of the continent and the diaspora. The presence of South African exiles uh, in Botswana and other neighboring countries created a kind of diaspora within a diaspora. And this has shaped Mukhosi's artistic sensibility. The homage to the South, to the Pax Africana of the 1960s liberation movements is also present in Mukhosi's inclusion of one of Ernest Cole's iconic photographs. Cole's image of two men shackled together wrist to wrist appears on its own and is repeated as a painting within a painting. In this way, Mukhosi places Cole as the antechamber to his own version of what I am calling Pax Africana. The many presences of uniforms, school uniforms, military uniforms, church uniforms, is yet another example of how the Southern question is embodied and lived in everyday life. As noted earlier, one of the ironies of Southern Africa in the 1980s was that despite the raging warfare on both our country's borders, we conducted life with a certain sense of blissful ignorance, unaware that our worlds were being upended by assassinations parcel bombs and airstrikes initiated or supported by the apartheid government. This militarism was indirectly reflected in the pride that we took in wearing our school uniforms and marching to our classrooms after the obligatory inspection by the school principal. Even the ways in which we thought about languages were shaped by a certain amount of embodied detachment. In the case of South Africa, the segregation and apartheid regimes chose to name our languages vernacular, and the name stuck. We would therefore attend classes in vernacular and read stories and folk tales written by writers who were themselves regarded as vernacular authors rather than as just authors. So the many fables and narratives that Mohosi has deliberately and conscientiously reproduced evoked those memories of studying Venac, which almost always took place after lunchtime. We would doze and suffer our way through being taught in our own mother tongue, and no one ever pointed out to us that the word vernacular comes from the Latin word verna, which means home-born slave. To revisit, therefore, the place of vernacular in the Southern imagination is to revisit 
the severing of our consciousness from exactly the place from which a home language is meant to spring, namely the home. The books and narratives that we had to read as part of vernacular lessons served the purpose of making our mother tongue alien to us. Thus, even though my own Setswana is very rudimentary, the tales that Mukhose attaches to his paintings remind me that the labor of reading and falling in love with one's language should not be left to chance. The long missionary tradition that created vernacular texts has mostly left us bereft of a language that we can truly own. Mukhosi's Tsuana fables remind me of the other Pax Africana. That is, that in the aftermath of this politicization of language, as Southerners, we have to find new tongues, new ways of speaking for ourselves that don't involve the shame of thinking in the vernacular.